Welcome back, wrestling fans. This is episode two of Classic Wrestling Memories, and we got a very different, very interesting, in my opinion, show. This is going to have stuff you are literally not going to hear anywhere else. And we are talking the decade where we had the Paisley shirts and the bell-bottom corduroys, the 1970s wrestling territories. And in a little bit, we're going to be talking to a Hall of Famer, Susan Tex Green, about working in the territories in those days. But joining me, my usual co-host for Classic Wrestling Memories, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. We're coming back at you with another Classic Wrestling Memories, talking about a time period that's very near and dear to my heart. When I was very, very young, five, six years old, started watching professional wrestling and, and getting hooked and was a very, very different era that I think a lot of fans don't appreciate as much. Uh, as they should, because it was the lead into the eighties and what a lot of people see is the big boom of wrestling with rock and wrestling connection. But I don't, I always say you can't know where you were unless you know where you came from. So we're going to talk about the seventies. Uh, what does the seventies mean to you since we're going to talk about the seventies, Seth, you weren't even a fan until the nineties. So this is a really unique perspective right. for you. Well, I have some memory of the eighties. I mean, I, I did see some WWF, uh, material in the, in the eighties. I just didn't know when it aired regularly. Otherwise mm. I would have been watching more often, but, right. uh, Obviously, I was born in the 70s, so I don't have very many direct memories of it. So most of my knowledge of 1970s wrestling uh, comes from the Aftermax, you know, the really? Pro Wrestling Illustrated and, and all that. And just because every so often they would have spotlights and biographies of a, a Bruno Sammartino or of a Dusty Rhodes or somebody like that who really kind of came into prominence in the 70s. So most of the 70s wrestling that I've watched has been either on the network or on YouTube or something to that effect. And, you know, some, some of the Memphis stuff. Uh, so I, I certainly would not call myself an expert, but it is an era that, it, you know, you cannot tell the story of professional wrestling without mentioning names like Bruno or Harley Race or, or guys like that who were huge stars in the 70s. Well, I think if, if we're going to talk about the 70s, we need to give a little bit of a, a, a primer, basically, for the fans that aren't that familiar with, with, with that era and time. So, you know, we're going to step in, in the Wayback Machine, as Kevin Sullivan would call on his podcast, and go back to the 1970s. And I think one of the biggest things people that aren't familiar with that era, era need to understand is the time frame we're talking about. This is before the Internet. This is before cable television even had a national presence. This is before even VCRs existed. This is before... Uh, newsletters, you know, uh, Meltzer and Wade Keller weren't even out. This was just a time when everything was truly regional. When you hear old timers talk about the territories, this was part of the heyday of the territories. So tell me as a fan, what, what is your understanding of the territories and what that meant, Seth? Well, everybody kind of had their own area, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously the Northeast with uh, Capital and we, uh, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, as it was mm -hmm. known at the time, that that was Vince Senior. I remember hearing stories of Eddie Graham in Florida, and right. um, obviously Jerry Jarrett in Memphis, mm -hmm. uh, Fritz right. von Erich in Texas. So, if you were a good drawing heel, you might go to New York for Vince Senior and work a program mm. with Bruno. Then you might go down to uh, to, to Florida, work a program with Dusty. Then go mm -hmm. to Texas, work a program with, with Fritz, 
And after mm-hmm. that, that amount of time, maybe a year's passed, and you can go back up north and have another feud with Bruno. Exactly. I mean, it, it's things were, you understand, these, these were regional promotions. You had promoters, most of whom were former wrestlers, who had a geographical territory, thus the term, that was, you know, uh, maybe a, a city or a, a series of states or, in some cases, a part of a big state or uh, maybe just one state in the case of, like, say, Georgia or Florida. And you had television deals that you you made with the local television markets in that geographical area. You know, you would li- literally approach the program manager of these TV stations and sell your television product. And your TV back then was was usually a studio show. It was a show that was not dissimilar from what probably all our fans know of, of, as the old uh, 605 TBS show, World Championship Wrestling in the 80s. Well, the precursor to those were all the territories. You had a television show that was usually only an hour long. Some territories might have uh, a two-hour show or might have two separate one-hour shows that showed on different days in these markets. Yeah, an A show and a B show usually. Exactly. And they were taped in television studios, so they were in front of small crowds. And the TV shows were uh, essentially what we would call squash matches or enhancement matches nowadays. So it was a, a, a non-pushed wrestler, a no-name wrestler, against a guy who, to use the inside term, was figured in, who was a star that was being pushed, uh, getting over his personality, his moveset, his finisher, and then he would cut promos. And then every once in a while on these TV shows, you would shoot an angle, you know, a run-in or, or, or a beatdown or something of that nature, all with the purpose of getting the fans who were watching this one-hour weekly show that live in that re- that regional area to go to wrestling when it came to their town. And that's where the revenue was really generated was from the gates of these live shows. And in, in most of the territories, they have what they would call a loop. And that was a set town within that geographical area was run in the same building on the same night of the week every week. And they'd usually leave a few dates open during the week for what they called spot shows, which were the smaller towns in the territory. They might only get wrestling once a month or once every other month, you know, because they didn't have a big building in those towns. They were usually armories or high school gyms or stuff like that. And then a few of the territories, they did not do uh, a television studio. Like uh, I know Vince McMahon Sr., there was a small building, uh, I think it was the Boys Club in Allentown, Pennsylvania, but he did his television. And Fritz had, had a studio that, that was adjacent to a TV studio, right? And that's how Bill Mercer got involved. Right, exactly. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that with the announcers on their television back then. But yeah, it uh, was essentially that was what your TV, and you would tape TV. It, would be, it wasn't live. It was taped usually anywhere from two to four weeks, it, it, quote unquote, in the can, meaning you know it was the, the real tape in the, in, in the can that you would then take out to these TV stations and they would show. Uh, Living here in Greenville, South Carolina, starting in the late 70s all the way through the end of the Crockett promotion, which uh, the territory I lived in was called Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, and it was run by Jim Crockett, and it was out of the Charlotte area was where the corporate headquarters were. They ran essentially South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, uh, West Virginia, and then later on in the 70s, they took over Maryland from what had what at one time had been Vince McMahon Sr.'s territory. And uh, so we got wrestling every Monday night. Big deal. At the, at the building, it was more auditorium. seemed like 1,200, 1,500 people, you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, that, was, that was what the territories were, and they were all different. And you have to realize, at the height of wrestling in the 70s, uh, we, before we started taping, I listed down a, a bunch of them to Seth. 
uh, and the, the actual quote-unquote official name of the, of the promotion and who the promoter was, how many did I give you? What, 25, 30 worldwide? Yeah, I think, I think it's about 30, yeah. And I mean, of that 30, there was what, like 25 of them were just here in North America alone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are a lot of territories. And you brought up the announcers. Uh, the announcers, because of the studio tie-in we're talking about, were often uh, local uh, celebrities, newscasters, weathermen. In the case of, say, Lance Russell in the Memphis Territory, he was the program director at one of the major uh, network affiliates there in Memphis. He was the program manager, and he became the announcer. And Dave Brown, who was his longtime color guy, he was the weatherman. Uh, Bob Cottle here in the Carolinas was a weatherman for WRAL Channel 5 in Raleigh, North Carolina. Like you said, Bill Mercer was a weatherman there in Fort Worth. Uh, Ed Whalen in uh, Calgary Stampede was a, uh, I believe, I believe uh, a, like a special interest reporter for one of the local uh, network affiliates. So that was completely different vibe. You didn't see, you know, main event stars wrestling each other like you do on Raw. You saw enhancement matches. The whole thing was get you to the building to pay your money to see this live. That's where the angles paid off for us as fans. And occasionally, and it depended on the territory, probably more predominantly in the southern United States, but elsewhere too, they would all work towards a big show. Uh, Northeast was a big example of that in the WWF, where you would have on holidays, like Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, uh, New Year's, uh, 4th of July, you would have a big show where all the angles would blow off, and because you had built to such a head, you could now book the one really big building in that regional area that you could fill up, say a Superdome in New Orleans in, in, in the Mid-South Territory, or you know the Texas Stadium shows later in the 80s in Dallas, or the Stampede Hall there in Calgary, that kind of thing. And I think it's also worth mentioning that a lot of these big shows, or many of them at least, weren't even on TV. Heck, some of them weren't even taped, you know? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's crazy, isn't it? To think there's no video evidence of some of these shows? Right. I remember when we talked about yeah, years ago when Randy Savage passed about how you know, before there was WrestleMania, before there was Monday Night Raw, before there was pay-per-view, Jerry Lawler and mm-hmm. Randy Savage were selling out 10,000-seat arenas. And a lot right. of those matches weren't even taped. They, they, no, they, no. they drew the money based on local TV and angles. Right. So 10,000 people locally, just from watching local TV, piled into the arena to see this match. Playing off that, Seth, is you've got to realize that um, it was it was a different era uh, also in technology. We talked about there wasn't much videotape. What videotape there was was very high-end, and it was ex- almost exclusively owned and used by hot television stations, the, the, the people that were helping the, these promoters produce their television shows. These would be the same type of cameras that would be used to film you know, your, your primetime dramas. You know, yeah, your, or your local your local newscast at night, your six or five o'clock news, depending on what part of the country you live in. You know that kind of right. high end camera, and so a, a lot of this stuff is lost to time, and was only in the memories of those that were in the building, because tapes were so expensive back then, and they didn't have the foresight to realize, well, thirty years from now, Vince McMahon will buy this and 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 put it on his network. They just taped over it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of the Memphis stuff has been lost because of that, you know, and and. I don't know what your opinion is on uh, our listeners' opinions on the network. One of the nice things about the network is Vince McMahon has been able, because of his money, lack, let's be honest, to get a lot of the stuff that ha- that that is remaining 
from this era and before it and from the eighties and, and, you know, high definition it with digital and put it out there for a way for us to see it. And for that is why a reason, no matter how unhappy I am with the current product, I'll probably will never get rid of the network because it gives me access to this kind of stuff. Uh, don't you, aren't you kind of the same way when it comes to the network? Yeah. I mean, I got rid of a lot of my old VHS videotapes of WCW pay-per-views when I got the network, because not only mm-hmm. do I, can I just watch it on my tablet or on, on mm-hmm. uh, uh, my TV, really, I mm-hmm. can watch it in much better quality without having to hook up a VCR. So, right. you know, why, why, unless the only stuff I kept and I copied over into my computer anyway was stuff that mm-hmm. had commercials, you know, so I could see right. commercials from the early 90s and, and, and such. But everything else right, that, was, right. that was the pay per views that I kept mm-hmm. archived for 20 years, I, I got rid of when I got the network. Right. And, and so a lot of this stuff, unfortunately, when you're talking about the 70s, is just lost to time. You know, and it's, it's, it's sad, but that just is what it is. But, but so, you know, before we, we we get Susan on the phone, uh, and we talk directly to somebody who worked in these areas, I just thought the people needed to kind of get an idea of what we're talking about here. So essentially, I guess the deal is what we're saying is you had small region. Yes, the NWA existed and there was the touring world champion, but as a fan in that era, you watched your local television. It was one hour a week. The guy calling the matches was somebody that you knew was probably a local weatherman or something. So you trusted him and uh, whatever the current stars and angles were, you were seeing at that point in time, as far as you knew, that was all there was in the world of wrestling. That was it, mm-hmm. you know, and because of the lack of all the other technology and the newsletters we talked about, you had no idea what was going on. You know, you, there were people like where I lived. I was lucky enough that I was kind of on the border between Georgia and, and Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. So I could, if I played with my rabbit ears right, I could get both TVs. But I was in a small minority, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the really the only other thing, and we will talk to Susan about this, was there were magazines. You know, these were the early days of the old aftermags. So that was really your only way of knowing about anything outside of your regional area, you know. So that's, to put it in a capsule, I think that's the best way for people to approach it when we start talking at, at length with Susan about what what wrestling was like in the 70s. It was a very different time. Uh, from a historical standpoint, we're talking about we're not long out of the civil rights movement. We're, we're coming right out of Vietnam. We're coming right out of uh, the, the, the equal rights movement for women. So, uh, the hippie uh, movement. Just a so, <laughs> the hippie movement. It's a very socially different time, uh, not nearly as politically correct as what, we're, what we have today. Uh, and, and it just wasn't the fast-paced instant gratification that you have now. Um, and I think that's important for the fans to kind of understand uh, before we really we get Susan on the phone and talk to her about what it was like being a wrestler in the, in the 1970s. Did you have anything you wanted to add about you know, what you would think would be important for the, the listeners to understand about the 70s before we get into the, to talking to Susan? Oh, uh, really? I, uh, I'm brainstorming at the moment, and I, I, th- I think we've covered it all, really, that – Nobody knew outside of what their local promotion was uh, unless they right. uh, unless they had those magazines and, mm-hmm. you know, th- th- it's really all they knew. I guess it's the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we why don't we go ahead and just uh, take a break right now and pay some of the bills. And when we come back, we'll get Susan on the phone and we'll actually talk to somebody who can tell us firsthand stories about what it was like during the 1970s in professional wrestling. How's that sound, Seth? Yep. So- sounds great. You never know who's going to show up on the A1 Podcast. 
What's up, all you stars and stars? This is former WWE diva Maria Canales. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Eva Lee from Lucha Underground, a.k.a. the baddest bitch in the building, a.k.a. La Cigaria. I'm Victor Leonti of House of Hardcore. This is Jason Kincaid, and you're listening to the A1 Podcast. This is Dylan Sizemore, the leader of Exceptionally Exotic, the fastest rising group in the National Wrestling Alliance. What's up, everybody? This is the morning star, William Huckabee. This is Mr. Saturday Night Michael Barry. This is Allison Kay, and you are listening to the A1 Wrestling Podcast on a1-wrestling.com. Hey, everybody. This is Jock Sampson, the Appalachian Outlaw, and you're listening to the A1 Podcast, baby. Get tall. Hi, this is Gregory Iron from TWO. You are listening to the A1 Wrestling Podcast, where wrestling and pop culture collide. This is the only podcast that's Jimmy Rave approved. All right, well, now on the phone, we got... Well, we got on the phone. I think we're here on the phone. My mentor. Yeah, yeah, we're here. Oh, we're here. All right. <laughs> La- La- ladies and right. gentlemen, wrestling fans, Hall of Famer, uh, former in- former world uh, world women's champion, Susan Green. How you doing today, sister? I- I'm doing good, brother. How are you? <laughs> oh, uh, it's, it's crazy, but, you know. Uh, yeah. Before we get to talking about the 70s, what we we're kind of talking about on this podcast, and I figured, well, if we're going to talk about the 70s, I'm, I'm going to get us a, a worker that can tell us about what it was working <laughs> all these territories in the 70s. I, was, I, I told Seth, I'll, I'll give Susan a call. I wanted to, yeah. to, to you know, put you over a little bit. You're going in another Hall of Fame, aren't you? Isn't that true? Uh, yeah. May I go into Wichita Falls, May 19th, 2021. And actually, the induction is done on the 20th uh, of May, where I'm going into the P- PWHF. Uh, uh, wrestling Hall of Fame. Quite an honor because they... Yeah, because um, in the beginning you had to be retired, and as everybody knows, I'm not retired. You know, <laughs> you're like Abdullah. You, only, only the ring <laughs> in the skies I think is going to retire you. I know that. <laughs> I mean, when, she when she hurt her knee of, about what was when did when did you have that accident for the knee? That was about ten years ago. Yeah, I went yeah. down to, to help her train some of her trainees, and she's in the ring. What are you doing? The doctor said, "Oh, I'm fine, train. You know, I can't hurt me. <laughs> you can't slow this woman down." <laughs> They don't make them like you anymore, you know. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, well, well, I, well some, I think some of my recent trainees were really surprised when I fell out of a tree and shattered my arm, and and it was a training day, and they came out, and of course the hospital said, you know, we got to get you to an orthopedic, and I, they strapped my arm down to my my belly, and my trainees weren't doing what I wanted, so I crawled through the rope with a busted arm, which now is held <laughs> together with two plate screws and and wire. No. Yeah, so. you're better one arm than some of the guys that are on national TV right now too. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I digress. I digress. But congratulations <laughs> on the induction, though. Yeah, thank you very that much. That makes what? Yeah. That's what two, three Hall of Fames now. Two. Well, I, I guess three. Well, four. Uh, ZPW, which is just a real, real small promotion out of here in South right. Carolina, and they invited right. me, uh, and then. Uh, Gulf Coast Wrestling inducted me into their Hall of Fame in 2014. Right. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, and you're so, also um, connected to the uh, Cauliflower Rally Club, right? Yes. Uh, I was recognized out there in, in 1994. When you're that <laughs> over, Seth, you lose count of how many Hall of Fames you're in. But. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah uh, I'm thinking about fact, buying Bruce Trissard's t shirt that said, I used to be over because I'm not. <laughs> Susan still is. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Talk, talking about the seventies, there's not a territory that ran in this from 1970 to 1979 when I was in a boating accident where my neck and back was broke that I didn't work in the United States. 
But you uh, even worked the territories yeah. overseas too, though. But you, we were all going to talk about oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a lot of the territories, but most of the ones overseas for the giant Baba and, and uh, the others, all all Japan, uh, they ran under the NWA call letters. Right, right, right. Yeah, they they had their own number, but everything overseas was was recognized as uh, NWA. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, well, uh, for our listeners, Susan, give me an idea here. Because I've talked to you about this, and you know, you and me talk all the time. So, for for our listeners, it's just we're old friends. <laughs> so this might get a little bit yeah. more familiar than what you're used to. But for our listeners, especially the newer ones who've grown up, you know, in the the era where it was one or maybe two big national promotions, and you have internet, you had the cable national TV overlay and the dirt sheets. In the 70s, you didn't have all of that. So what do you think, is, as a person who was, who was living in that time and working, the t- what was the major difference of, of uh, the mindset of the business and the fans and the boys in the 70s as opposed to what we got to when some of this stuff started coming in in the 80s and 90s? What was the major well, difference, you know, in, your, in your opinion? The, the, the boys, we were more like a family because we were, we were on the road with the boys, you know, uh, mm-hmm. which they were our family more than they were home with their their personal family you know their wives we they saw more of us on the road uh than they saw their wife and children right uh also whenever female wives when we knew that there was somebody in the audience that did photographs and did stories for the magazines because back in the 70s there's about six magazines that wrote for Mm -hmm. wrestling not female wrestling and then later 70s early 80s you know they put out a book with just the females Right, uh, where they covered just the female wrestlers, and, and that mm-hmm. was their their thing. Uh, well, and with that, you know, I'm one of the I'm a, I'm a people person. A mm-hmm. lot of people, you know, I like going going out and I thought they want to take pictures. I'll take pictures. I don't care, you know. Uh, right. And, and, and um, if they wanted somebody to talk, not that I particularly like, because a lot of people would look at me because being from Texas, I say words that. <laughs> they look at me like, "What'd you say?" <laughs> That's not normal <laughs> English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. And uh, uh, New York, actually, Vince Senior put me on Johnny uh, Carson with Bruno Sammartino, and, and I didn't particularly like him because he was a big Italian that thought women should stay home and have babies and cook for their husbands, and, and we had no place in the ring. And, and, and you know, I'm 16 years old, sitting on national TV. And he's sitting there, and then Johnny Carson looks at me, and, and believe it or not, I stuttered really bad till I got on Johnny Carson. I said, that's just something else that he's going to be able to say. So I talked really slow. And, <laughs> you weren't going to stutter that night, were you? <laughs> yeah, that, that night I wasn't stuttering. And, and, and Mr. Carson said, well, we can tell you're from Texas. <laughs> and I thought... That that's really wild right there. That's that's really wild. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good Johnny. <laughs> yeah, you know, but but uh, not very many of us females that liked Mr. San Martino simply because he didn't think we had a place in the ring. Well, I think and he some of sure the- didn't think we deserved to be semi main, which he was main. Right. Uh, no, I think so, I think some fans need to understand, and you can explain this better. You know, today, especially in the last year and a half or so. Vince has put a real emphasis on the on on the women's division, and uh, you know, of course, you had that starting in the '80s in Japan. You had a, some promotions were, were strictly women, but in the '70s, it's different time period. Uh, you know, uh, the we were right smack dab in the equal equal rights movement for women and things like that. Women were not even in the territories in the '70s. They were not a 
a mainstay in any one territory. Y'all were more like a special attraction that a promoter would bring oh, in yeah. every once in a while, right? That's that's exactly how I was going to ask. Is that uh, ladies were more of a special attraction? They were a special feature. Uh, you know, there wasn't like a, a regular division. No, um, absolutely not. In fact, uh, Roy Shires only used females in May because he knew it was the end of school. That's ah. when his crowds fell off, and they wouldn't fall off if the girls were there. Right. Of course, Roy Shires, so, for those who don't know, is was, was the promoter of, of the San Francisco area, which was essentially Northern California. Yeah. Stockton, yeah. Sacramento, San Jose, that area. Right. Yeah. The, the, yeah. A lot of our listeners will, will, will know Dave Meltzer, the famous wrestlers. That's the territory he grew up in. That's the wrestling he grew up on. Mm-hmm. Was San- yeah. yeah. Uh, Pat Patterson was, was Roy Shires' main, main eventer. Rocky Johnson, the, the Rock's father, was the main attraction there. Uh, of course, when, when Pat Patterson tag team, it was with Ray Stevens because they had the same body built and they looked alike with the blonde hair. Right. Oh, and they had other yeah, stars uh, like I know Duke Yamuka was a, was a big heel there, yeah. and uh, uh, you know some yeah. of the some of the Asian wrestlers and Peter Peter Maivia was a big draw there because of the Samoan yeah. population. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but so I think fans need to understand that that you have a little bit different perspective because you're and this is not a knock on you by any means. It's just that the boys they were there every week doing the weekly televisions and stuff, and then you guys were coming in as the girls were coming in. Like I said, once, twice a year, and, and you pop a house. It was, it was to well, me. It was well, like almost like when they would bring in Andre or would they bring in the world champion. Mm-hmm. You were something that was meant to dr- to draw a bigger house, correct? Oh yeah, oh yeah, you know. And and Roy Shars was the one promoter that actually paid the females, the women, mm-hmm. for what they were worth. You know, if he if he knew you drew the crowd and you kept the crowd up, then you got paid for keeping his crowd up. Right. But if you went out right. there and you 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 didn't make the crowd pop and you didn't. Uh, do it when you, you got the pay to go with it. You know, I mean, I never got less than $75, uh, right. but that was when, uh, I won't say the girl got hurt. Uh, she had a wardrobe malfunction and, and whoops, <laughs> we got out of the ring. Uh, I got <laughs> you. Know, it, it was, well, it was time to leave. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it's fa- there's a famous story here in the Carolinas from when I was a fan where, uh, Nikita Koloff <clears throat> had a wardrobe malfunction, uh, on a on a on a televised broadcast, and Tommy Young had to kind of tuck him back in, so to speak. It happens. It yeah. happens, folks. Oh but, yeah, you know, and, and you know, know, Ric Flair. Other... Yeah. Oh yeah. I have seen mm-hmm. Ric Flair's rear hind end more than I've seen my ex wife's rear hind end, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah. And that's just from a fan yeah. and then hanging out yeah. with him. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> I, digress. Uh, yeah. I, I I hate to interrupt here, but Train, you just. You just made a perfect opportunity for me to play this cue here. Mm-hmm. Listen, I've seen him with his pants off many times. It don't mean anything. <laughs> That's, of course, great Arn Anderson. <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> but uh, you, you, talk, you talked a little bit already about Roy Shire and San Francisco. You talked about Vince Sr. in the Northeast and the World Wide Wrestling Federation. What were some of the other mm-hmm. territories you enjoyed working in the 70s? You uh, talked about Bob, um, of course, too. Yeah, uh, yep, Bob, he, he, he was good in all Japan. Um, it was, was nice going over, but um, uh, Leroy McGurk in California, uh, not California, Oklahoma, you know, and then... Um, that was Mid-South, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then um, Bill Watts ended up when Leroy shut down. Uh, that was Mid-South, uh, right. Bill Watts. Yeah. Uh, but and, well, and, well, uh, well, you hear us call it, Seth, we would call it Louisiana or the Oklahoma Territory. That's what the boys yeah. would have called, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think the, I think the listeners need to understand. Yeah. Sorry, Susan, but I think the listeners need to understand yeah. 
as me and Susan talk, sometimes you'll hear us say a city or a state. That's the way amongst the workers. That's the way we knew the territories back then. It was, it was based on where it was based out of. I mean, if you were going to, you weren't going to the AWA, you were going to Minneapolis. You weren't going to, to the Crockett's or mid Atlantic. You were going to Charlotte. And if you're working, and if you're working for Vince, you say you're going to New York. Right. Exactly. 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 And that started from DC up. Right. Right. (laughs) That was before Um, the Crockett's had taken over that part of the territory. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I yeah. digress. Go ahead, Susan. I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off, sweetheart. Uh, but, you know, I enjoyed Leroy McGurk's, you know, mainly because I got to, my family would come in, you know, they'd drive $700 to see me in Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. uh, which <laughs> being from Texas, 700 miles was not nowhere. That's a lot. <laughs> to get a, you know, <laughs> to get across Texas, you're going to go about 1,500, or from tip to tip, you're going to go about a little, little over 1,400 miles from the very tip down in Brownsville. Yeah, but that shows you how great a family top. That shows you how great a family you have that Texans would actually go into the state of Oklahoma. I'm just. (laughs) (laughs) Even I know that rivalry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So do the Briscoes and Dusty Rhodes, believe me. But anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But but, uh, in the process, you know, his territory was long miles. Uh-huh. But it was you just had so much fun there, you know. And, that's and that, it, that's it was, funny you say that because all the guy workers I talked to from that era, they hated working that territory. Not that they they yeah. loved they loved Leroy. They thought he was great. And yeah. He was a payoff guy. Yeah. But what you said, the long rides, and I know I lived in Louisiana and I lived in in the Panhandle of Texas, which was another mm-hmm. territory that was the Amarillo yeah. with with Funks. But those are long yeah. drives on country roads, not you know. Yeah. Yeah. People have to realize yeah. the seventies. We, we didn't have, yeah, yeah. We had Interstate twenty that went to Thompson, Georgia, and then you was on two lane roads going exactly. to Atlanta. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, I think that's another thing a lot of current fans, you know, don't understand. You see these guys Vince has now, the guys that are under contract. They're flying everywhere. He charters buses. That didn't happen back. How did y'all get around back in the seventies? I think you said you had that camaraderie. I think this is why y'all did. Why did how'd y'all get around back? Uh, then? Uh, I had my own car, uh, mm-hmm. and then, and, and, and in less than nine months, I put 98,000 miles on it. Jeez. You know, <laughs> and it's these places and, and like you're talking about. Going you, to I was, a, yeah. you got to understand that, that I did almost three months of that overseas to where Some I wasn't that, driving, driving my car. Right. Somebody <laughs> you know, else is driving it. I yeah, well, they didn't, they weren't driving my car because my car was parked. You know, I, I didn't let anybody else. My, I actually personally put those ninety eight thousand miles behind the steering wheel. Wow! And whenever I went, normally I was with a female uh, that couldn't drive. You know, so mm-hmm. I truly had to do all the driving. Right. Uh, I had my last car for ten years, and I don't think I put ninety thousand miles on it. <laughs> there you go. You know, I, I tell a lot. Yeah. It's it's real easy yeah. nowadays because everybody's got a smartphone and they have the GPS and all that. You know, one of the yeah. first things, and I can't remember if it was you or Robert Fuller that told me this, but it was one of the two of you. Somebody yeah. somebody that was tall with a cowboy hat. So it had to be you or Rob Fuller. Yeah. Kid, <laughs> get you a Ram McNally map. You're going to need one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and I still carry one in my truck to this day, even though I don't yeah. wrestle anymore. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I, you got you had to have that atlas. <laughs> Uh, one thing about Robert Fuller that uh, I had, and you know, Train's heard me say this before, but Robert Fuller is that type of guy that I don't think he had any 20s or 30s. He went right from 18 to 40 and has stayed there ever <laughs> since. <laughs> oh my God. No, we'll talk about Rob Fuller. We'll talk about this. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Did you ever work for the Welches in, in, in Eastern Tennessee and Dothan in that area? I did. 
Uh, I didn't do very much for him. Uh, right. And and mainly after I'd been uh, on the road, and now you got to mind, I wrestled almost three years when I was still in high school. Right. I started right. in my 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 summer before my junior year. Right. And then I, Joe Blanchard, sent me from to Phoenix, Arizona, where I wrestled May Young at 15 years old. I was I was old enough to wrestle, but I wasn't old enough to drive. So my brother <laughs> drove me out. And so then, you wrestled May Young at 15. Yeah, yes, and she about killed me. <laughs> Shocker! I was 112 I know, right? pounds. <laughs> I was 112 pounds, and and then she was probably really 180, and about no words spoke. Just, and I'm sure Joe Blanchard sat there and told a lot of these girls that I was fighting because I'm probably one of the only ones can, that can legitimately say I got to wrestle the girls or the women that I saw wrestle that wanted to make me become a wrestler. Right. You know? I also have the privilege of saying that I know two of the females that I wrestled when they wrestled me, uh, that two of them sit there and said they were retiring from wrestling. One of them being Penny Banner and the other one being the girl that I had my first match with, Marie mm-hmm. DeLeon there in, out of San Antonio. When I came back after being on the road full-time wrestling and she saw me jump over the top rope, it's like, it's time to get out of this business. Uh, she had been passed uh, by (laughs) you know i I had went from 112 pounds being in high school as a swimmer and a tennis player to 212 pounds a professional wrestler Mm -hmm. yeah because Uh, uh, for people that don't know uh susan you're on the tall side right oh yeah yeah i'm six one she's my height yeah she looks me eye to eye, and that's when we're both wearing cowboy boots. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I'm yeah, not a big uh, guy. I'm not Andre, but I mean, I'm I'm a decent sized guy. You know, I'm an average yeah. size wrestler for a man, and she's my size. Yeah. So she's yeah. definitely on the bigger size for a female yeah. wrestler. I, I'm six one two. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. Roy Shires, whenever he saw me, he, the first time he saw me, I walked in there, and he's up there and said, "Kid, I want you to be different." And I just looked at him. I thought, "Well, I am different because all these people I'm going to be fighting." My partner, Sandy Parker, was only 5'2". Now, with her afro, she looked like she was six foot because she had one big <laughs> afro. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, Donna Christentello, uh, she was 5'5". Five five. Tony Rose was 5'4". You know, and, and, and that's who he had brought out to wrestle for three weeks in, in <laughs> San Francisco. And, and I, he says, no, but I want you over 200 pounds. And I thought, uh, how am I supposed to do that? Well, Mr. Shires ended up giving me $200 a week to eat. He also paid a gym fee for me to go there to be able to train to where I wasn't putting it on just in bulk weight. And then I had, went down to Los Angeles for, for three weeks, and he, he sent me down with $600 in my pocket to eat uh, to come back because he had us there for another two weeks on our way up to Oregon for the Owen. Uh, and and uh, I came back at 212 and uh, he's up there, and you know, I said, "Now you're going to have an explanation for telling Lillian Ellis, or AKA Moolah, <laughs> that you're the one that wanted this weight because with her you had to be under 130 pounds. If you worked under Lillian Ellis's school of girl wrestling, you had to be under 130 pounds. It didn't matter your height. Yeah, she she wanted yeah. girls she could push around, and 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 Lillian was a bit on the stocky side. That we, oh yeah, you know, she so that just was. Yeah, you know, at 170 pounds and you're you're less than 130, she can start laying on you, and and it was over. You know, you you didn't have a lot of defense whenever she got mad, mm-hmm. uh, and and her, her weight could push you around. And then when I came back, it was 
And that's how I actually am in the record book because uh, I guess you learned the hard way. You didn't piss me off. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Seth has posted before and I, he's talked about maybe maybe putting it all together as one and posting the long interview that I did with you a few years back where you tell that mm-hmm. story. And uh, are you still planning to do that, Seth? You still plan to put that that up at some point? Yeah, absolutely. That'll be a future episode of Classic Wrestling Memories. So for okay. you fans okay. listening, uh, there is a story where Susan, if I if I'm putting it right, you, you hooked Moolah, right? Uh-huh. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and what, the, the, the better part, it wasn't one of those that she got to tap out like they do today. <laughs> she actually had to say, "I quit." <laughs> uh, right. So she so. quit the match to give me the title that went undeclared in the record book. And that, but that whole story you can hear in that episode that that, that Seth is going to post. It's a, it's a good story, worth a listen. Well, let's let's flip let's flip the other side of the country. You were talking a little bit about Roy Shires. You've always told me that one of your favorite territories to work was Florida, and I've heard that from a lot of boys uh, from from the from the seventies. Uh, yeah. Did you? I mean, there were essentially two territories in Florida. You had most of Florida, you know, Tampa South was Eddie Graham and Championship yeah. Wrestling Florida. Then you also you also mm-hmm. brought up earlier Gulf Coast, which is the Fields Brothers that ran mm-hmm. Mobile and Pensacola. I'm assuming when yeah. you're saying Florida, though, you're talking about the 80 Graham territory is what you enjoyed working so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, what what was it about that territory that, w- that made it so fun to work? Besides the fact that you know there's a lot of good looking people down there, and <laughs> the, the weather's great. But uh, true, uh, <laughs> I guess because there you didn't have to go out to the motel pool. You could there was always a beach nearby that you was able to go hit the beach, and right. and. Uh, uh, whenever you get up there and, and, and the guys, you know, would always be telling you where to go, uh, mm-hmm. if not taking you to there. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, trips weren't long. You know? Was, 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 was Eddie, was Eddie a good payoff man? He could have been better, but uh, he was fair. You know, you couldn't argue with what you got. Uh, right. I, I'd heard Mike Graham tell the story that Eddie would like pick who's he's, who he's going to pair guys up with just by how they're mm-hmm. lacing up their boots. And that that's the type wow. of thing that oh, yeah. I I can't understand, obviously, because I'm not a worker, I'm not in the business, but it it's fascinating to me that his mind would be able to, just by the way he's, he's lacing up his boots, he knows how yeah. who to, who to uh, pair yeah. up as an opponent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think... Um, well, you put your boots on. <laughs> yeah. It tells a lot about what you can do. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I'm not trying to put myself over here, but but I'm sure Susan can back me up on this. Once you've been around a while, and I'm not even trying to compare myself to Eddie Graham, who was one of the, the greatest geniuses and minds this business has ever known. But once you've been in the business a while, I can I don't have to even feel it. I can see two guys lock up. I can turn my back to the ring and just listen to the sounds of them taking bumps and know whether they know what they're doing or not. Don't you agree with that, Susan? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it becomes innate with you. I, I, I've i trained guys. I've, I've done it at Susan's gym before. My back's to them. I hear a bump, and I'll before I turn around, go, do it again. You didn't bump right. And they're going, how did he know that? I heard it. I knew they did. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it yeah. just is what it is. But, yeah. Well, when you think when you think about Florida and 80 Graham, let's, let's stay on 80 Graham a little bit. I mean, obviously, one of the most influential men uh, in the business. Uh, so many great bookers, even up to what we have currently working for Vince either came directly from Eddie Graham or from were came from guys who were trained by Eddie Graham. Um, Dusty. What was it about yeah, Dusty, Bill Watts, uh, Eddie Gilbert, Kevin Sullivan, I, I could go on, uh, Michael Hayes. Mm-hmm. 
what was it about his his finishes you think that was that worked so well in that era where you didn't have the internet and you didn't have why why were his finishes so effective in your mind? He knew what the people wanted, mm-hmm. with them not knowing what they wanted. Yeah, uh, I, 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 without I having the internet, you know that that mm-hmm. uh, he could tell, and he, and he knew what the men. And of course, you know, we didn't go to gyms. We didn't have gyms at the back door. Uh, the office was the office. It didn't have a ring. Right. Uh, so you just had to rely on your your ability uh, to be able to do what you were asked. Right. You know? And and whenever I'm training somebody now, I sit there and said, I'm not being teaching you to be an acrobat. I'm teaching you to be a wrestler. You know. Right. Um, and you, they, it's like hunting. And, and of course, I had two new trainees start Tuesday, <laughs> and it was like. Well, why aren't the ropes tight? And I said, because you don't need them right now. You know, and I said, you're not going to need the ropes to do any of that flipping because you won't do the flipping in here. (laughs) uh, It's like, you know, uh, I'm not teaching you to be a gymnastics. I'm teaching you to be a wrestler. And and, and you will know how to protect yourself and and, and keep yourself from being getting hurt if something happens. You're going to know where you're at in the ring, upside down, right side up, flipping or flopping. You know, this will uh, blow, this will blow fans minds away. And and this is, I think to tie back into what we're talking about in the seventies, because Susan has that mentality. Uh, one of the last times I went down and helped her with some of her guys before the doctors told me I couldn't get in the ring anymore. Uh, your guys that you had that time, from my understanding, one of them had actually worked a show or two, but they both were pretty mm-hmm. far advanced in Susan's training. Well, we get mm-hmm. done doing what Susan does with them. And, and she tells them, Hey, you know, Asked Cruiser Lewis, who we've had on the show before as a guest, and I went down and we asked him, what, what do you guys want to do? They said, can you teach us how to do suplexes? Susan hadn't even taught these kids how to take or give suplexes yet. <laughs> okay, So that probably <laughs> boggles, that probably boggles, you know, uh, the mind of, of a lot of current wrestling fans because of what they see. But that's the way it was, uh, you know, and that's the way it is. But in the 70s, a suplex was a finisher, you know, mm-hmm. uh, think about that. Uh, it was yeah. a high impact move. I remember when they asked me that, I, I wasn't shocked, but I had to look at yeah. you and you kind of gave me the office. Yeah, it's okay. Train show them, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but I want to go disrespect you in your house. But my whole point was yeah. that that was, you know, uh, that was wrestling in the, in the, in the seventies. I think there was a lot more wrestling. Don't you agree? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, uh, in fact, when I was in Texas this past, um, July, August, I ended up wrestling from promoter out of, uh, Houston and Galveston. He runs, and I said I got him in touch with the uh, for him to run Fort Worth at the at Billy Bob's. Mm-hmm. And and when I go out and when I go home, you know they end up and I do call home Texas because I want to Texan always a Texan. Right. But uh, <laughs> he was surprised that that you know I can get him in touch with other places to do. But he said then I said that Luscious lived in Dallas and she'd come down. I said you know and just tell her I'm the real deal. You know uh, we don't do any of that crap that she did with wwe <laughs> it was like uh uh i did i did well whenever i finished the match and i said for some reason they had us different dressing rooms uh i was walking out and well and i think it was because her husband was there that they dressed together uh but as i was walking by she sat there and said you don't ever have to worry about stepping in the ring with me again <laughs> and i thought uh what she said if i would have had to do half of what you just put me through i'd have never made it Wow. And I thought, you know, a monkey flip, a bill, a drop kick, you know, uh, what's so bad? A bulldog, you know, what's, those are just basic moves. Bag bumps. 
Yeah, you know, just, you know, a belly button. I mean, and, and like my trainees, I sit there and said, you know, whenever we come back uh, on Friday, you know, you'll be doing falling 100 times before I get up there and they will be, you, you will learn, they will be right ones, not bad ones. <laughs> and it's like, okay. <laughs> and here nowadays in a, in a tag team match, you know, five minutes into the match and they're all, all, all four guys are up on the turnbuckle doing their big tower of doom spot, you know? <laughs> Right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Now, that, to give an yeah. idea of what finishes were like in the 70s reminds me of a story you, you've told many times, and I'd love for you to share it here if you want to. It also ties into the payoffs, because I asked you that about Eddie Graham. <laughs> Going back to San Francisco and Roy Shire, tell them the story about the, about the, the pay with the drop kicks and the finish there. You know the story I'm talking about. That's This is a great story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this was the 70s when there. you did this to you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was probably 72. Okay. Uh he had Vicky Williams was my partner, and he had gotten mad because for a week she never would let me have any of the the high hot tags where you come in and you do all the flying around on the the two. Oh, you had, the, you, had, and, and, you had the Ricky Morton spot. You were doing all the selling and making the hot tag. I got you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> he sent there, and we got to another town. He went there and told Vicky, you know, I don't want to see you make another drop kick at all. But, you know, Green, you're gonna hit when she tags you in. You're gonna hit. Donna with the drop kick, Tony with the drop kick, Donna with the drop kick, Tony with the drop kick. <laughs> and then, no, Tony, first Donna drop kick, Tony with the drop kick, head scissors, Donna, head scissors, Tony, drop kick, Donna, drop kick, Tony, head scissors, Donna, head scissors. <laughs> so you, 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 you threw some head scissors in there instead of the drop kick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Drop kick, Donna, again, she rolls out, and, and I was supposed to drop kick Tony and get her in the bulldog and go home. Okay. Well, I forgot the drop kick. I, I ended up just grabbing her and taking her into the bulldog. Well, our payoff went down because, you know, of course, I wasn't arguing with $125. It right. was good for me. But but he would have sit there. And we, if I would have threw that extra drop kick, we'd have made another $125. So basically. For the show. Right. So basically that drop kick cost you a hundred, that's $125 drop kick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, yeah, but so I, it cost I, all four of us $125. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I don't think people think about that. You know, today you see all these crazy high flying moves, but that sequence you just laid out, that's a long sequence. And granted it's all the same moves, but that was yeah. it. Yeah. It was all drop yeah. kicks and head scissors. And then a bulldog. Yeah. That was the finish. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that was, and, and you have to realize that it takes a lot out of no, I, throwing that many drop kicks and that many head scissors. Sister, I've been in the um, ring. I know why you forgot the drop kick. You've blown up. <laughs> I get, you're right. <laughs> I was yeah, looking for I, oxygen. I know exactly why you forgot the drop kick. I've been there. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> that drop kick might have hit the knees if I'd have tried to give it. Exactly. <laughs> It'd be a little bit low. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, none of us was arguing with our $125 payoff. We thought it was right. just fine. But and he, when Roy gave us our payoff and he sat there and said, Green, and I went, oh, my God. You know, what did I do? What did I forget? What <laughs> what went wrong? And then he sat there and told me that I forgot a drop kick. And I thought, no, you know, if you right. say so, but I think you can sit there and say, well, before you did the bulldog, you were supposed to hit her with a drop kick. And I went, oh. See, and that, and that, that well, sounds crazy, but I think people don't understand about the 70s is that, like we said, there was no internet. It was all territorial. So the people only saw, if you're in San Francisco, you saw Roy Shire's television. As far as you knew yeah. as a fan, that's all there was in the wrestling world. You know, that was yeah. it. 
except for the ones that got the magazines. And we're going to talk about the magazines in a second because you brought them up. But um, so when you had a Finnish guy like Roy Shires, a Finnish guy like Eddie Graham that made this era so good, there was a reason why he wanted that drop kick there. You might never even know what it is, but he in his mind probably knew why he needed that drop kick and thus why you got your pay hurt because you didn't do it, you know, Um, which which makes me want to ask you a question. You know, that I think that was, you know, because what we're talking about, the line, the mindset of the fans, you just know in your area, once you learned now for the boys who stayed in the area, because we always stated the women were different. Y'all were special attractions that went around, though. But you still essentially you had your troop of, of girls that you worked with a lot. You would go and work for another 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 promoter. You had perfected your act. Basically, you knew what was going to yeah. work, what was going to get over. But now you're in another territory with another television it's like a whole new set of eyes, even though you're doing the act over again. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And it did. Yeah, it and is. I was the, one of the girls that worked for Lillian, AKA Mula. Um, and I call her Lillian because I considered her a boss. I didn't consider her a wrestler unless she was in a ring. Right. And, and, um, I called her Lillian because had... she told me, she, she told me to call her Lillian. You just called me Lillian. Yeah. That's what she told me. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She could be a, not so nice person every once in a while. Do you think? <laughs> that's, when she, that's, that's when she liked to throw her authority around. But, she, you know, with me, I was brought up to be a working person. You know, I, did, I didn't rely on right. anybody else. I, I made my own money, and, 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 and like she didn't like it when her boyfriend offered me a job driving a record because I had a CDL license. And when I started driving the record, he, he treated me fair. And then when she tried to take 30% of my money, and that's what a lot of people don't understand, and a lot of the promoters and boys that after she passed away and the territories went, different and there was only new york and florida or tennessee uh that you worked for uh that they said there's no way you know and we mm-hmm. said oh yeah you know she took 30 percent off the top and and then whenever she tried to get 30 percent of, off of me driving a wrecker and mm-hmm. my boss her boyfriend said you know if she wants to give it to you she'll give it to you but i'm not right. and, I, and of course i told her i said my contract with you was for you keeping me in the ring which i was one of the lucky ones because she wanted my money Right. She kept me in the ring. Right. Yeah. Well, it's because she knew you could I get her home, over. That's yeah. why. She knew you could yeah. get her over. Y'all had good chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and with, uh, when I went home to Texas, uh, Joe Blanchard or Fritz von Erich would call me and I sit there and said, you know, you get the towns around me and I don't mind and I'll work Houston on my way back south, east. But, uh, you know, I come home to visit. I didn't come home to, to wrestle, but, but I got my own matches, so I didn't pay her. Thirty percent. You didn't have to. You know, she was, there was no booking fee. She you booked yourself. No. Yeah. So and and she got wind of it and got mad. And I sit there and said, "Did you make the phone call?" No, I did. <laughs> you know. Right. So, well, I I, I then, think I think I think uh, our listeners need to understand, and and, and I just want to get yeah. this caveat out. Uh, yeah. I have ultimate respect for for Mula for what she did for the business. She trained oh, yeah. my trainer. She's I I she's part of my wrestling lineage. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I like Susan. We were honorary pallbearers at her funeral. Susan has, yeah. I think, I'm not trying to speak for you. You're here, but you have the utmost professional respect for Mula. But oh, I yeah. think it's yeah. it's well well known now and documented. She was not the most um, upfront, exactly. b- yeah, of a <laughs> businesswoman. And I yeah. think a lot of people didn't know, uh, and like you said, until many years later, what was really going on in this era, the '70s. I vi- yeah. I vividly remember. Mostly because of the two individuals involved, because they're two of my closest friends in the business, was that one of those last shows that, that Chief was at Wahoo, and I remember him mm-hmm. coming up to you and apologizing to you 
because yeah. he had finally found out what had happened to some of you girls. And yeah. you, of course, were like, don't worry about it, Chief. It's past the past. But that just blew my mind as a green guy in the business that this went on for years, mostly in the 70s. And the boys yeah. had no idea. And, and you know, and he yeah. felt bad. So, but anyway, I, I digress, but it, I, I don't want the fans to think when we're talking about Lillian, like we are, it's not because we don't respect her. It's just, we knew her on a level that a lot of people in the business didn't, you know, but anyway, I, I digress. Go ahead. Go ahead, Susan. With, your story. I didn't to know, with Lillian, if you work for, I was, whenever I went to work for her June 5th of 1971, um, mm -hmm. mind you, I'd already been working on August 13th would have been that I'd been wrestling for three years. I still had to pay her, her training fee because everybody mm -hmm. paid her, her training, training fee. Uh, or you didn't work and right. promote, you know, it was, it was known. Joe Blanchard said, you know, I can let, use you every once in a while, like I've been doing when you was in school, but mm -hmm. if you really want to make wrestling your life, you need to go work for Lillian Ellisor. And you can believe it or not. I didn't know who the woman was. Well, you're from, well, it goes I back to what I said there. earlier. It was, it was, it was regional. No <laughs> she didn't, yeah. you knew Fritz, you knew Houston wrestling, you knew Joe Blanchard wrestling. You didn't know yeah. what she was doing. Yeah. Okay. I'm no, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, but, but it was one, you know, I, I, I knew Marie DeLeon. I knew Evelyn Stevens. I knew Kay Nobles. I knew Barbara Galento, um, Sherry Lee. These were people that I saw wrestle that I got to wrestle. Mae Young. I, I mean, she didn't come into Texas. I went to Arizona at Cora Combs. I got to wrestle. I went to Tennessee. She but these were girls Texas. that weren't Moolah girls that the Texas promoters were using. And yeah, like I said, they, they, they used you, mainly. Yeah. Texas people because they didn't want to use the Moolah girls uh, until I started working for. So, so here um, you are as a fan, as a young girl, you know, this is the sixties as opposed to the seventies yeah. when you became a wrestler. It's just what I'm talking yeah. about. You didn't know this. You knew what you knew. That was, that was wrestling to you. What Fritz was putting yeah. on, Joe was putting on what Paul Bosch put on Houston. That was wrestling to you. Yeah. You didn't know anything. Yeah. Else. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, so it was one of those that, that they brought in the girls that were from Amarillo or from Tennessee, you know. So I, you know, those right. ones I just named are people that I got to wrestle, you know, mm -hmm. which there's not very many people that if I said, you know, Betty Nikolai, Jean Antone, you know, who are they? You know, uh, they were from the 60s. Uh, right. And, 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 and you sit there and they wrestled to mid-70s and, and then um, got out and, and, you know. I will sit there and say, Kane Noble, she was married to a professional boxer, and I don't remember his name, but if she ever mm -hmm. hit you with a left hook, it would put you down. <laughs> <laughs> it would put you down. Right. Uh, but her nickname, I mean, everybody had nicknames uh, around, and, and, and um, mine was because I was from Texas wearing a hat and always had Western outfits on that I, I was text. And, and for Kane Noble, we called her Flamingo Legs because – she could run and work out, and her legs would never get any bigger. And I sit there and said, she looked like a flamingo. We said, if you just pull one leg up, you'll know. But she says, you know my left. <laughs> Donna ended up getting the name Dragon Lady because uh, overseas one time was at a, a Hilton Hotel, and they had a, had bars on every floor, and she liked the Dragon Bar. And everyone ah. says, well, we got to find Donna. we got to find Donna. And it's like, huh? got to find Donna. Got to, have you seen Donna? And I said, have you checked the Dragon Bar? <laughs> and, sit there and go up and lo and behold she'd be sitting there and i said i said you know and, and the bartenders were nice and I, but i said and i said and we just come to dragon lady <laughs> and, and and uh but uh it was one of those that, that you sit there and just laughed you know whenever you'd sit there and you'd, you'd find a place and and um paula k you know uh and and donna christian like working for nick Goulas and i hated it 
But you only worked for him twice because I walked out. Because you weren't going to uh, call him Uncle Nick. That's why. <laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't going to call him Uncle Nick because whenever he gave me $12.50 for a payoff and it was a sell-out house, I mm-hmm. sit there and told him very easily I was going home. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think there are probably more yeah. horror stories from, from workers about Nick yeah. Lewis than any other promoter ever. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, you, but, you, yeah. you you said something earlier I wanted to bring up. You were you were talking about you worked your way back out east, and there were two points I wanted to bring up. The first one being mm-hmm. you said you would work sometimes in Houston. I didn't realize Paul mm-hmm. Bosch used girls that often. He did use girls, though, in that era. Uh, he did, uh, but whenever he used them, it was uh, very rare, and, and, uh-huh. and I was his queen of the ring. Uh, uh, well, you're a local Texas like, girl. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, he, he'd always, whenever he'd be sitting there saying the crane of the ring. And, and if you were there on a Christmas show, he'd try to have girls. If we were passing through or, or in the area mm-hmm. on the Christmas show. But I sit there and said, the girls always got fruitcake and the boys always got a quart of crown royal. <laughs> and it's like uh, big who likes there, fruit but... cake? <laughs> you know, who likes fruit cake? <laughs> and we'd we'd run around and, and believe it or not, there were some of the guys and I'd always Tom Jones he just passed away not too long ago. Uh, uh he loved the fruit cake that, that Paul Bosch bought and he'd sit there and he'd catch me and he says, You know, we have to do it outside and I said, I know. <laughs> so whenever we I'd start leaving he'd come walking out with a bag <laughs> And I would pass my fruitcake to him for him to pass <laughs> me the bottle of crown. <laughs> you, you can you can let you can let the guy who just gave you the gifts see you switch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. Now I, I think um, it would be remiss if we're talking about the seventies. Yeah. Paul Bosch. Yeah. It was one of those legendary promoters in the seventies that I think has kind of yeah. been forgotten by historians. Paul Bosch was yeah. was every bit as equal. I think in, in stroke as like a Vince McMahon Senior or a Fritz von Erich or Sam Muchnick. Would you agree with that? I mean, as oh, far yeah, as respect yeah. with the boys and, and oh, yeah, the leg, yeah. the stories I've heard, uh, are, are, I mean, the man was a God in the city of Houston. Is that correct? I mean, oh, he yeah. could do no oh, wrong. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I think they got streets named after him. They got, um, buildings yeah. named after him. Right. Um, and, 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 yeah. I know Eddie was like that in Florida. And, and I think that yeah. another thing that you, you know, and, and I think I talked about this on an earlier podcast without you, Susan, uh, where the WWE's kind of got this thing going right now where Vince is pushing well, I don't know if it's Vince or if it's Stephanie and Hunter, but they're pushing the idea that they're doing charitable work. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, um, that was very prevalent in the seventies and guys like Eddie Graham and Paul Bosch were two promoters. I can, I know for a fact were guys that pushed that very hard. They just didn't advertise it as much. Uh, you didn't yeah. do the appearances that the ki- the guys do now, but you were doing those charitable events and fair, even back in the seventies, weren't you? Especially for guys. Oh like yeah. Yeah. And, 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 but we didn't, we didn't charge autographs either. Like you have to with right. for, Vince, if Vince catches you doing an autograph, right. um, you get docked your pay, you know, right. um, and, and it could give you your walking papers, you know, yeah, so, I mean, it, 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 it's tough with, with what they have to go through these days up there now, but I sit there and said, we'll do the charitables, uh, right. and, and uh, Paul was very high with the blind, because his son's blind. Um, ah, okay. But, okay. but uh, you know, we, we did other events, but I, he, he was really... Uh, more set with the blind or, or had that was that was his really charity that was that was the one close to his heart yeah it was close yeah. to his heart that makes sense yeah. and and the thing about uh vince's guys doing charity i mean that's fine but when they openly show on their programming heels doing charity work it's just like it, yeah. it's just confusing to yeah. me but I, I didn't i don't want to get off on a tangent on that it's just i, I had to no but that would have never happened that would have never happened in the 70s 
No. No. Uh, and, 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 and with Vince, who the, who the hill and who's the baby? You know, you don't know from one, one event to the next to yeah. who you're supposed to like or not like. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Well, but that brought so, up another point, you know, that I wanted to bring up. You were talking about, you know, I would go back East to, to, to Lillian and you would mm-hmm. book yourselves with Fritz and with Paul and all that. That was pretty common in the seventies because of the way the terrorist Hill system was, wasn't it? Where if you were leaving, you know, you had done, if you're a guy and you've mm-hmm. done your six, eight months for, let's say, you know, Barnett in Atlanta. Right. And he's yeah. going to send yeah. you to, to Bob Geigel in Kansas city. My boy. <laughs> my boy, <laughs> Such a beautiful man, beautiful man. I'm going to sing yeah, to Bob yeah, Geigel yeah. in Kansas City. But anyway, because of the, the these these handshake agreement these promoters had, they could they could book you because you know it was probably like a two day drive from Atlanta to Kansas City. They would book yeah. you a night or two for Goulas in Tennessee or for you know Leroy McGurk in Arkansas on your way to Kansas City. Wouldn't they do that? Wasn't that very common back oh, then? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. You know you got to have a, a working. You know, and the promoters that used you on your working way out knew they was paying you that night because that was going to be your your expense money. Right, right, right. Now, now with with the female wife, <laughs> we were lucky because of Lillian. Um, mm-hmm. That that and she would never give me any money because she always said you have money because you work. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm working, but not because of your choice. You know, right. Um, but she would put me on the road with somebody that didn't have. You know, I picked up Peggy Patterson and. El Paso, Texas, on our way to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. She got worked Tennessee for two weeks and didn't have a penny in her pocket. Uh, that's Nick Goulas for you. <laughs> you know, yeah, but I mean, you know, Lillian <laughs> knew what kind of payoff she was going to have and, and made her made Donna take the money from her for her percentage. Wow. And, and and she says, you know, I don't have any money. I said, I got you covered. Don't worry about it. But she she put them, everybody on the road and I sit there and said, when I had three girls in the car with me and nobody had no money and I was putting motel food and everything for and keeping the car running uh with gas and everything else you know it's like what you know what was she expecting but i never had a problem i mean they always mm-hmm. paid me back and, and 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 but i sit there and said she just tried her best to, to sabotage me you know mm-hmm. and, and and i actually can say that i wrestled more once i left Lillian, and, and i when i left I, she didn't think i'd ever be able to go anything and i said i went to japan uh that left her in December was in Japan that January for just seven days and made more money, made more money in seven days than I made for the four weeks that I'd wrestled for her over there. Now you've brought her up multiple uh, times on the, we've been talking Donna Christentello. And I think we mm-hmm. talk about, there are a lot of stars from the seventies that fans today mm-hmm. don't know. I think Donna definitely yeah. falls in that category. Uh, I, I would yeah. I would encourage all of our listeners. Resume, put go go Google Donna Christentello. She's on the network as well. If you have the network, Donna was one of the best workers, male or female, of that era. And I tell guys if they want to see how a bump is supposed to look, go watch some Donna Christentello. She was that yeah. good. Her bumps, the timing, the way she did them. Uh, I, I'm sure you agree with me on that, Susan. I just say oh, yeah. that's one of those lost stars of the '70s. It's, if you're a fan of wrestling history, it's well worth your time to take it out of your time to go look at some of her stuff. But yeah. but anyway, anyway. And it's one of those that uh, me and Sandy Parker was on the road with with Donna Kristen Kellogg and Tony Rose. They were the world female tag team champions. Right. And and they are the only two out of the history of the world's tag team champions with those belts 
that toured the world. I mean, they went everywhere. I wrestled, I wrestled them in India. I wrestled them in Australia. wrestled them in New Zealand. wrestled them in South America. wrestled them in South Africa. Uh, who deserves to have those belts put in the, the Hall of Fame with, with those belts? The one that has it, Donna Christian Tello and, and right. Tony Rose. Right. You know, she's yeah, not Tony in the Hall of Fame. Uh, but they yeah, actually defended shame. it. And, you know, Wendy Richter and, and Joyce Grable, they never left the States. Nope. You know, nope. Uh, uh, when Lolani Kai and Judy Martin had them, uh, they lost them in Madison Square and took them back in Tokyo. So they, the only place they'd ever went overseas with the belts was in Tokyo. It was in Japan, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that um, it's one of those things that, that um, everybody associates the world belts with, with – George Grable and, and Wendy Victor or uh, Princess Judy, Victoria. Judy and, and Lonnie, yeah. Yeah, Velvet McIntyre and Judy and, and Lonnie. But I think right. the ones that truly defended those world belts uh, were Donnie Christentello and Tony Rose. Right. That was the bulk of the 70s. They were, they were off and on the champs pretty much the whole 70s, or at least the later half of the 70s. Well, they, 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 took, they took the belts in, in the 60s and had them till Tony retired in, I think, 76. Yeah. So, uh, um, so. speaking about Japan, cause you were talking about Japan. One of the things about this, about the seventies with Japan, and I've, I got this from, from Wahoo and I got this from Bill Eady. Both told me this part of the re and it goes back to what we're talking about, how you could book yourselves across the territories. Part of the, the, what they both liked about working Japan back then wasn't just, you know, obviously Japan was, it was a good payday, and we've both worked Japan. It's 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 a great place to work. They treat you great mm-hmm. over there. We we, we both oh, yeah. agree about that. But on your way back, especially I don't know about you for the girls, but for the boys, what Bill and Wahoo loved was you were guaranteed a vacation for a couple nights in Hawaii and probably a good payoff in San Francisco or LA when you got back because you were you would always arrange it that way when you were coming back, either going to or coming back from your tour of Japan. You'd hit 50 states wrestling and work a couple shots in Hawaii, mm-hmm. which was a territory, you know, yeah. and, and, and get a good, nice payday. And then you, you, you came back to the States, you flew into LA or San Fran and Roy Shires mm-hmm. and the LaBelle's would use you for a night and you get another payday. And then you went to wherever you were mm-hmm. going back to your home territory yeah. or to wherever the next stop was. And, and you know, I uh, could be going up North for, for Don Owen, or maybe you were going to Calgary to work for Stu, wherever it didn't matter. You were yeah. getting yeah. a couple of paydays and essentially a vacation in Hawaii and either San Francisco yeah. or LA, two nice places to vacation. And that, so you're saying that was very, very common for the boys back in the 70s. For the boys, for the boys, the girls, we didn't do that way because Lillian had to get you home because she wanted her percentage. Right, right. And anyway, right. when we were overseas, we didn't, uh, we didn't try to wire the money home from overseas because it cost too much. And, and of course, when you wired it, it came out of, out of the percentage. We right. didn't have to pay for them, you know. So wiring money from overseas, it cost her a lot. So she said, just bring me the money whenever y'all get home. So yeah. whenever we get, got, whenever we left Tokyo, our next stop was going to be Columbia, South Carolina. Right. Well, I know Bill told me part of work in that part of work in the seventies, Bill Eady told me this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said, you know, kid, cause it, cause I was, I was still married when I first met Bill, you know, and I was a young husband and a young father and, and he said, you know, what you want to do? And he goes, I know times are different now because this is the nineties mm-hmm. and it's the indies. He said, but what you want to do kid is what I did when I broke in, in the seventies, find you a place you like. And I think a lot of the guys did this in the seventies, find mm-hmm. you a place you like to live. And it might be the second or third territory you were, but if you'd like the schools, you find a good price on a house, the wife likes it, buy a house mm-hmm. there, 
Then go work the territories, work the areas, work whatever. Send your money home. Live like a hermit mm-hmm. on the road. And and the guys who were smart with their money, you know, and the guys yeah. who did that uh, were the guys that tended to be financially successful in this era. Is that kind of what oh, your yeah. experience was too? Oh, you know, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I mean, some guys, you know, your Jerry Lawlers, your Briscoes, your Ole Andersons, they were smart enough to to buy into the territory, you know, and so they kind of yeah. had their own little home space. And they were over enough that either they didn't have to leave their home territory or they could be very selective about taking a shot here or there. Like Lawler might go up and work for Vern for a couple of shots. Yeah. But but the bulk of the boys, you know, if you weren't a top, top guy like a Bruno or, a you know, a Andre or, or, or Dusty or somebody like that. You found mm-hmm. someplace you liked, you bought a house, you went out and worked for Bob Geigel for six months, then you worked for Don Owen for six months, then you worked for, you know, the Rougeaus for six months. But you were living like a hermit on the road in these in these territories and sending the money home. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, Ricky Romero was from Amarillo, and, that, and of course, that's uh, uh, Jay. Jay and David, Jay, Jay and, and uh, Mark Youngblood's dad. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he lived in Amarillo, but I said he he had a truck that had a little uh, camper on it, and and it was self contained camper. And I he sat there and said, "You want to use my truck?" And I thought, "Well, pull in, and I'll use your tag at the hotel, so you don't have to worry about finding a place to park." <laughs> you know, because uh, the other girls could use my tag on my car to where it looked like there's two rooms, and he was actually living in his truck. Um, right. For, for sending the money home for for wife and family to live on there in Amarillo. Yeah, well, I I, uh, I know uh, uh George one man gang George Grave one man gang mm-hmm, who's mm-hmm. originally from Spartanburg yeah. right next door to me here listeners he yeah. told me that you know when he, when he first got his break after he'd worked for Barnett in Georgia and for here for the Crockett's of the Carolinas mm-hmm. his first big break was Texas working for Fritz mm-hmm. you know yeah. and he was riding with Scandor Akbar the legendary you know now uh, wrestler mm-hmm. and then manager there. Scandor had a van that they didn't go to hotels, you know, yeah. they had a big van. It was, it was George and Scandor. And I, and I think maybe Dewey Robertson, the, the missing link. Mm-hmm. We're all riding together. They just slept in the back of the van, saved their money. Yeah. And just sit at home. Yeah. You know, that, that's, yep. that's, just, you know, that's how I made money when I first broke in in 76 or 77, whenever it was, you know? So we're talking that same era and one man gang, he went on, had a very successful career, a lot of, you know, made it to Vince and all that, but that's how you made it in these days. It was, which, which brings me up to the question of money. We, I've, I've always said, you know, one of the things about the death of the territories in that era, because it wasn't long after the seventies, you know, Vince buys out his dad and, and, and Crockett starts gobbling up territories and tip Turner goes nationwide with his cable. And so we're getting out of that era mm-hmm. as we move into the eighties, but in the seventies, uh, and you and me have talked about this a lot, Seth. Now, the top, top guys were making good money, and the guys underneath weren't making great money. But mm-hmm. more guys were making a decent amount of money to live on than, than are nowadays. Would you agree with that, Susan? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, you, you sit there and take the bottom guy, um, the, the opening match, um, and, and they might be making five $600 a week. Mm-hmm. Um, but gas was 29 cents a gallon. Right, you right. Know, yeah. hell, uh, uh, if, if, if we were in an area like female-wise, we, if we got to stay in a motel for a week, uh, like in Oklahoma, we in Louisiana, we could stay a whole week in the same motel. And, and then give it to us. Now, it sounds crazy, but we got the motel for a week for $29. Right, right. You know, and that was, you know, where you ain't getting the motel for $29 a night. 
Yeah. Right. Well, not yeah. where you want to stay in overnight. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And and I mean, we're talking red roof ends and the travelers lodge and, and, and nice name, you know, decent, yeah, Vermont decent hotel. name brand yeah, hotels. Yeah. You know, yeah. 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 Where well, you knew the sheets were clean and the cups, the cups yeah. were okay to drink out of. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you didn't see the bugs die bombing yet at night. <laughs> right. Well, I, exactly. Well, I, I heard that, you know. I, yeah, we to let the maids, you know, you don't have to change their sheets every day. You know, we just need fresh towels. And we'd lay the towels outside, and whenever we'd come in, they'd have the towel sitting on the end of the bed. So we knew we had fresh towels. I'd heard the story about the guys back in this era, and there was a little bit of this going when I broke in. But I heard it was very prevalent then. You would have these some of these underneath guys we're talking about that were not making the big pay. But they were good yeah. drivers, and they had a reliable car. And mm-hmm. they, 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 they probably were local. They weren't guys that went to a lot of territory. So they knew all the back yeah. roads and, and the territory. They mm-hmm. would be the wheel man. And they'd find four or five guys that were new to the territory, you know, and mm-hmm. say, hey, I'm on a, uh, you know, you need to get to the next town. I'll, I'll drive you. And then they would charge yep. the guys like two, three cents a, ga- a mile for gas. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, you're, you're, let's say you're working for McGurk in, in, in Oklahoma. We talk about those were long drives. Or you're working for Stu in mm-hmm. Calgary, another territory of really long drives. Oh. You got yeah. three guys in the car with you because you're driving. You're charged, you know, 400 miles there, 400 miles, 800 miles round trip. And you're charging two cents a mile t- times three. You do the math. Mm-hmm. Like you said, gas is 29 yeah. cents mm-hmm. a gallon. You're making money. Yeah. And in some of the really, really, yeah. really, you know, creative ones, uh, you know, they might be married and, and their wife would make sandwiches and, and go out and buy some chips and some Cokes and they put them in a cooler. And, you know, instead of stopping, because this is before the days of 24 hour McDonald's or whatever, yeah. God, you know, yeah. you're coming back. I'm hungry. Well, I got a cooler there. I got some sandwiches in a dollar. I'll just tell you a sandwich for a dollar. You know, so they're, yeah. they're, they're, yeah. they might have only made $75 that night on the show being the curtain jerk, but they probably got $300 yeah. in their pocket when they get back off of trans, you know? Oh, yeah. The cre- and I think that lends into the next thing I want to talk about uh, with the 70s. Uh, obviously, these guys were very ingenious, very creative on a way to essentially create a revenue stream for themselves. Because you didn't have the internet and you didn't have the national overlay and you didn't have the dirt sheets, um, you were wrestling more often, though. It isn't like what they are today. You were wrestling every night, essentially yep. in front of the same crowds in these territories. Because a territory, would there would have several key markets in that territory that they ran every, the same night of the week, every week, all year long. And then they do spot uh-huh. shows on other days. So you had to yep. become much more creative as a worker. Even though we talked about earlier, you could take your act. Yeah, you could take your act from one territory to another. But when you were in that particular territory for an extended period of time, you better not give them, the, let's say, you know, I'll use Greenville as an example, because they ran Monday night was the night that the Crockett's ran Greenville, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. If if the main event the week I went was a fan was I don't know uh, Blackjack Mulligan against Ric Flair for the Mid Atlantic title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I better not see the same match next Monday when I go back as a fan. So Blackjack and mm-hmm. Rick had to mix it up, make something. They had to. It really, I think, the '70s. What I'm trying to say is, it really pushed you as a worker, not only because of the amount of ring time you got, but because of the way the system was built. Your creativity had to be at a much higher level. Can you, can you speak to oh, that yeah. a little bit for me, Susan, about, about yeah, what yeah. it was like running those same – I mean, even if, even for you as a girl, like we said, you were a special attraction. Okay, you went and worked yeah. for Roy Shire in May, like yeah. you said, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's say he yeah. books you back in September. I know it's only a few months later. You can't do the same match you did in May, can you? No, no, no. You know, and, and mine would be that I'd go into Texas because I always took from September to 
uh, so after New Year's off uh, from from Lillian and, and to where I could be home. And they knew that in those months, and if I just happened to have gone through Texas, I knew I had Dallas, Fort Worth. Dallas was Monday, Fort Worth was Tuesday, San Antonio was Wednesday, Corpus was Thursday, Houston was Friday. And if I'd just been through there, I, I was going to be looking that I had to know how to wrestle because I was going to have to pull something totally out, out of the hat different than what Dad saw me just do. The only thing that I could do there that I did in every match is that I jumped over the top rope. And that was my entrance to the ring, me jumping over that top rope. And and uh, it, it it was one of those that they would say, you know, well, they, they brought TV or somebody had come back from New Orleans and, and saw you wrestle. And it's like, all right. I don't remember what I did in New Orleans, but I'll pull something out of the hat. (laughs) But but we knew how to wrestle. (laughs) Right. But what what I'm saying is I think that, that, uh, you know, you you hear a lot about in the current product, fans and wrestlers complain, and even even old curmudgeonly vets like you and me complain Mm -hmm. about, well, it's the same. They're doing the same thing over. And I think some of that is, yes, there's way too much television now. Obviously, with Vince having eight hours a week. But it's also what we're yeah. talking about. These kids nowadays, even Vince's kids, mm-hmm. they don't have the ability to be in the ring every night in front of a live crowd uh, with different people honing their craft, learning the yeah. art form of what we do as professional wrestlers. And you yeah. got that every night, no matter what territory you were in in, in, in the 70s. Correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, know, uh, you had to know how five different ways that how to do a top wrist lock, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you know, if somebody called a top wrist lock, that, that you knew what they was going to get to get on you. Uh, because you sit there and say, come to some of the names now. And, and then it's like, because when, when, I, when I, some of my guys came out and started saying, I, they wanted to learn to do how a hurricane Corona. And I thought, what in the devil's a hurricane Corona? And I thought, I don't want nothing to do with a hurricane. I can tell you that. But, but, and it's a, it's a head scissors. Yeah, well, just, tell me it's a head scissors. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just different than from you don't do it from the side, you do it from the front. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to put Susan over here. I know re- with the recent induction of of Ricky and Robert to the uh, WWE Hall of Fame, a lot of our listeners have probably gone back and watched their matches. A very common spot for Robert Gibson it was that beautiful flying traditional flying head scissors he did from the side. Yeah. You're you're, yeah. you're listening now to the woman that taught that man how to do it that way. But I'm not trying to toot your horn, Susan. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a, that's that's a shoot. And and and, and who yeah. will tell you that? Who will tell you that with yeah. no question? Oh, that's that yeah. that that girl taught me how to do a head and scissors. That's why I do that move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> he, he he was up and coming in, in Alabama. Him and his brother. Whenever I'm not Alabama. Well, yeah, Alabama. Oh, Gulf Alabama Coast. Gulf Coast. Go uh, over the fields. Yeah. Go for Lee Fields. Yeah. Uh, and and he saw me do it, and it's like, how do you do that? And I thought, you can't do it because I did it. <laughs> <laughs> Just in my spot. <laughs> yeah. Ricky Robert, uh, to me, there, you know, we made that joke about uh, about Fuller before. I think Ricky Robert, mm-hmm. it, it, it's almost the, the exact opposite. They had twenties and thirties. They they just stopped at forty. You know, right? They didn't, yeah. they, they, their age is finally starting to show. Mm-hmm. Finally, yeah. it's 2017. They both broke in in the 70s. Okay, <laughs> and they're finally yeah. starting to look their age. But, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, and, and and there's another star of the 70s that's, that's lost. And I'm glad that Ricky and Robert got to go in for a lot of reasons. But with yeah. Robert being able to bring up Ricky Gibson, Ricky Gibson was another one of those guys. I think was a great star of the territory system in the 70s. That's forgotten. Yeah. 
Don't you agree? About Ricky Gibson oh, yeah. was an incredible baby face. I mean, oh, those yeah. fans, yeah. those fans in the Gulf Coast territory, they loved. Yeah, him. they absolutely oh, yeah. loved. Him. And that that brings up another yeah. point uh, I was going to talk about too a little bit with Ricky being a good example. Ricky Gibson being a good example with it being this week to week thing. Don't you feel like there was a much more personal connection with you guys as the workers? And the fans, because they did see you on such a regular basis live, almost to the point where you were like a part of their family if you were a babyface. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 the fans knew us, and, and then they knew the ones that would talk, and they knew, you know, give me five minutes, I'll be back. You know, right? Because a lot of times we had to make sure we got in the dressing room to make sure that they knew we were there. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times we wanted to get in the dressing room to get a chair. Uh, there were, I've sat there and taught my people that I've trained um, that if they see a veteran come in, that they offer them the chair if there's not another chair sitting around. Right. Uh, and and um, that's just the most respectful thing to do if there's a veteran come in and there's not a place for him to sit. Right. What's that story that you've told me before, Seth, that you heard Roddy Piper talking about uh, on an on a, on a interview one time before we, we lost Roddy? He, he was working a show and Luthez came through the door and he dropped his bag, dropped whatever he was doing, walked up to Luthez, shook his hand and said, Mr. Thez, it's not going to be on the same show with you or something to that effect. You know, right. he, he knew yeah. as soon as the veteran walked in, you drop whatever you're doing and you walk up and you pay your respects. Yeah. And I think that no. was much more prevalent in the seventies, wasn't it? Oh yeah. You know, I will sit there and say the rock. I don't, I'm, I'm going to say that his dad taught him Rocky Johnson. Uh, right. to be respectful whenever he walks in he sets his bag down and, and, and goes and shakes hands with everybody sitting in the dressing room right uh he he makes the first move to do the handshaking uh, mm-hmm. and I, I guess that's, that's keeping him humble uh, mm-hmm. uh but but um you know I, I walk up and introduce myself and of course I shoot on Medusa. First time I met her, you know, I wrestled her for AWA a couple of times and actually mm-hmm. took the belt. And we did a all-girls show out in Palm Springs, California, and she had to have our own her dressing room. And it's like we're all girls, you know. And then whenever <laughs> I wrestled her and and um, for Greg Price here in South Carolina, I said we was in a little bitty town, and she come walking in saying. Uh, who she was and I sit there and said, I've already met you. I've already wrestled you. <laughs> and it's like she didn't remember me at all, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I sit there and said, you know, and I, I brought up California in the eighties and, and then, mm-hmm. uh, for Vern Gagne, uh, when she dropped the belt to me in Denver, Colorado. And it was like, that wasn't you. And I said, yeah, it was. <laughs> Did you wrestle her the first time with your natural hair color? And then when she met you again, you had dyed it again. Is that what it was? You think <laughs> uh, it could have been, uh, you know, and, and well in Palm Springs, I was dark headed, uh, right. in Denver, I, w- I was blonde headed. Uh, well, that's a good story in the sense that of what we're talking about rock who was brought up by his, you know, trained by his father who was, became mm-hmm. a star in the seventies. And that old school mentality we're talking about was prevalent then. Ducey, all due respect to Ducey, she wasn't brought up that way. She wasn't yeah. brought up in the business. She wasn't trained that way. She probably just never was even told that before. I'm not trying to defend her, you know. Yeah, I'm just yeah, saying right, that, yeah. that, that there's right. a high possibility that's that might have been, you know. Very, and, yeah, yeah. As, as Train can attest, I'm a big Manusa fan. So 
Oh yes, you, know? you are. Yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I, and quite frankly, I've met Medusa, and I, I'm, I love Susan to death. She's, I, I praise her all the time. Boys put her over. I, I like Medusa much more than Susan does. So I mean, and that's another thing. Just wrestling in general, <laughs> no matter what era, what era it is, whatever era you're talking about, wrestling is is, is you're you'd be amazed who knows who and who likes who and who doesn't like who. It just it is. We're like any other group of large people. Mm-hmm. We're a family yeah. and we can be dysfunctional and we can have our feuds. But at the end of the day, I, I, I would dare say Susan will defend Medusa over somebody who isn't a wrestler at all because she knows what Medusa went oh. through. Am I, they, yeah. Oh, yeah. Am I right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whenever, when Medusa came back from Japan, she was one to be reckoned with when she was up in New York and they brought in Blue Nakano for her to wrestle. Um, yeah. She was one. That, that they knew she knew what she was doing. You know, when she was yeah. in Japan for that six months, you know, she learned the language. Yeah. And I said, I didn't like Japan that well. I didn't want to stay that long. <laughs> Stan Hansen, <laughs> you were not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it, 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 get me in, get me out, and just give me my money. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, a, a personal story about The Rock, to, to, to dovetail off what you were saying, Susan. When me and Dr. Feelgood, when we had our tryout for Vince, was mm-hmm. one of Rock's ascension to what he beca- what he is now. You know, obviously, one of yeah. the hugest stars in the world. And here's a guy who could have been big-headed. He had just recently mm-hmm. won their title, and he and he had and he had you know he he had Steve Austin do the honors for him. Who would God? We all know how big Steve Austin still is too, right? Mm-hmm. So this guy yeah. has every reason in the world to be uh, just to big star you. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, even though I'm older than him, and I and quite frankly, I've been in the business longer than him at that point. Even though I'm not under contract, right? Yeah, and yeah. he's their current mm-hmm. champion. He came to he came over to our part of the locker room and introduced himself after our match and told us we did a good job. He didn't have to do that. That's Rocky Johnson's influence, and that's the 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 seventies yeah. where it was a different time, like we we're talking about, and and where yeah. where you, you like you said at the beginning of our conversation, you you were a family. Uh, I mm-hmm. I kind of laugh when these fans nowadays talk about, oh, did you see that? I think that they really hate each other, and it was a shoot, and he's going to hurt somebody, and he did that on purpose. I don't care how much animosity and legitimate heat you have with somebody. You very rarely, even in this era we're talking about in the 70s, did you see guys try to cripple someone? Yes, you might stretch yeah. them a little bit. They're your dance partner. Yeah. They're how you make money. You can't make money without somebody to make money with. I'll have to sit there and say that I learned how to do my shooting and, 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 and fighting from Denny Hodge, one of the, one of the top men yes. from the yes. 60s and 70s. You know, He's still oh, yeah. got records in Oklahoma university that that haven't been broken whenever he went to college he's got records in the navy that that when he wrestled for the navy that haven't been broken he's uh, a freaking he, his four they years don't, they don't make them they don't yeah. make him like danny hodge i mean he's, the man yeah, is a freaking yeah. all there is to it. he didn't have a point scored on him his four years in college that's incredible in his wrestling you know and and, and you know so whenever i came back from japan the first time and he saw that what happened to your hair and i said they cut it off because they split me open in japan you know and, and I had 35 stitches in the back of my head from getting hit from the girl that wasn't supposed to be in the ring. Yeah. Um, she blindsided you with a bucket, there. didn't she? Didn't yeah, she blindside yeah. you with all? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Danny said, well, that won't happen again. And I said, <laughs> yeah, that's how I was able to stretch Mula or, or, or hook her and, and beat her, you know, because mm-hmm. I thought, you know. Right. Play the game. You're going to you're gonna take, take into the game. And, of course, whenever I outweighed her, she couldn't push me around. Right. She couldn't do, you know, I had, I had the whole game in my pocket now with my weight. Uh, and, and all the promoters liked me heavier because I looked 
and what does a wrestler look like being a female? You know, I, with my weight on me, I look more look like a wrestler as far as they were concerned because it looked yeah. like I had to defend myself. And 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 back in the sixties and seventies, partway into the eighties, we didn't have the pen, roped off areas for us to walk down. We didn't have the security walking us to and from the, the ring. We didn't have security walking us out to the car. We didn't mm-hmm. we didn't park inside. We right. walked through all these people. You know, and, and you know, in, in Mexico, I did get stabbed, you know, mm-hmm. so it would be one of those, but yeah. that was, I was... I was about to say, so if, if somebody pulls a knife on you, you're on your own, right? Right. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. Well, you, yeah. You, I've heard the stories before, Seth. You got to think about it. Yeah, in some of these territories in the bigger cities, they'd have cops there for security. But if you get a full-on scale ride at a show, there's what, 10, 15 cops? Well, what are you going to do once all Man. 10, 15 cops are ta- have tackled 10 separate fans and started? They're kind of busy. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? There's mm-hmm. still another 2,000 really riled up people. You, you, know, you still got to. Yeah. Which, which was going to ask me. We were just talking about how personal the fans took it back then. Because it was like, and that's part of the reason why I think what you just said. There wasn't the yeah. barricade, there wasn't the, the security like Vince has now. You, you kind of guys were on your own. How many yeah. riots yeah. Did, you, did you have to go out and help the boys or one of the girls get back to the, the locker room oh. alive? That happened every night, probably, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I can remember wrestling in, in um, Jackson, Mississippi. And Bob <laughs> Sweet Tan was wrestling, and he went down and was knocked out. Well, Mike huh? Bouillet, a hippie, right. uh, was there, and I sat there and said, all of a sudden, I went, oh, no. And I, me and... Uh, Paula Kay, she had Diamond Lil as her partner, and a Dag- darling Dagmar was mine. And I looked over the t- out the top of the well. They didn't have a roof on the dressing room, so I was on the table looking over the top to mm-hmm. see what was going on because I heard heard a riot because they put us put the mixed tag as a semi main event, and all the guys had grabbed their stuff and just left. We're new in the territory. It's you know our <laughs> second night. We don't know what's happening. And all of a sudden, I. Look, and I went, oh, no, I'm banging on the door saying, Katie's out there. I mean, Diane and Lil, you know, and Dagmar mm-hmm. says, what? And I said, and, of course, there was two-by-fours in the dressing room. Well, I grabbed a two-by-four <laughs> and, and go running out. <laughs> and, and Dagmar's in my, trailing me, you know, trying to keep up with me. Well, I'm hollering, you better run. <laughs> and I start swinging this two-by-four. Well, the people are letting us back because they see me swinging this two-by-four and, and, and to get Mike Boyet, the hippie, Diamond Lil, and Paula back because Mike sat there and said that all he could hear was, brother, I got your back. And he said, I looked over my shoulder and there's nobody there. I looked over the other shoulder. There was nobody there. And I looked down between my legs and I saw this little shit, you know, <laughs> which the midget had ran out to help. Wow. Mike, when, when he saw that she saw the people coming in after him. And I thought. You know, and all I knew, I had to get out there with the two because my only chance was to be swinging the two by four. Right. You know, for, because the people would back up to, to let me get after them. And, and I sit there and said, and it was one of those, don't y'all ever let your eyes off the Diamond Lil because she's going to have somebody's back and it's going to be costing us our lives. She's a little person. For those that don't know, yeah. Diamond Lil, she's a little person. Okay. Yeah. She was. Yeah, whenever you would hear, whenever you would hear Mulitz about her damn midget, that's not. That's, that's, that's Katie. That's Katie. Diamond Mid- Lil. That's Katie. Mid- mm-hmm. Lil. She's yeah. what? Maybe three foot six. Uh, yeah. But a heart is 43 inches. 
<laughs> yeah, but 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 a heart and 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 scared of nothing like Texas. I'm scared. Yeah. She fears nothing. <laughs> so yeah. I can imagine yeah. her. You know, I yeah. can imagine her. And, and to put this in perspective, once again, a lot of our fans once again won't know some of these seventy stars we're talking about. Michael P.S. Hayes has gone on record as yeah. saying the biggest influence, his favorite wrestler when he was growing up, was the California hippie Mike Boyette. Another one of those you might want to yeah. look up, fans. Put this in yeah. perspective. What year was this that this riot broke out? This 70, sound like 74, 75, probably. Is that about right? Yeah. And probably 73, 74. Okay. This yeah. is in Jackson, uh, Mississippi, the deep, deep South. Yeah. Just coming out of the Civil Rights Movement, just coming out of the Vietnam War, every negative yeah. thing you can think about the South. And this guy is with the top heel in the territory with long blonde, bleach blonde hair. Tie dye everywhere, acting like he's the guy from California who's openly smoking joints on the way to the ring, calling himself hip. Yeah. Can you imagine the kind yeah. of heat that he would generate in that town? To put it in perspective for you, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, the cops yeah. would see him smoking marijuana. Oh, that's just that's his boy. Yeah, don't worry about it. I mean, that's the way wrestling yeah. was back then. You know, he yeah. lived his gimmick yeah. twenty. You know, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. you can imagine the kind of heat that kind of gimmick would generate in that town and that era. You know, that's what I'm I'm trying yeah. to say. Well, the the great uh, Charlie Daniels uh, sang about that once. And the last thing I wanted was to get in a fight in Jackson, Mississippi on a Saturday night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Very true. Very true. Very true. Yeah. Well, you, you brought it up earlier, and I wanted to talk about this before. We need to start wrapping up, Susan, because I really appreciate your okay. time. And I know you got things yeah, to no, do. No. But yeah. um, you brought up earlier the magazines. We've brought up many times during discussion. There was no internet. There was no WWE network. There was no K. There weren't even there weren't even dirt sheets. Dave Meltzer, Wade Keller, these guys hadn't started doing that yet. But you yeah. did have the magazines. Yeah, you had the magazines. 70, Seventy-five how, cents for a wrestling magazine. How important <laughs> were those to you as a wrestler in those in that in that time period? And getting your because, like I said, it was regional. You didn't know a star. All you knew, if you were in Jackson, Mississippi, that's all you knew. You didn't know what yeah. was going on in Calgary. You didn't know what was going on in L.A. So how important were those magazines for you guys as talents who were going from the ter- from territory to territory? How much did they that's mean? That's what, it meant everything. And that's what actually made me be more, more wanted by the other promoters across the nation here in the States and even overseas. Because I got on more covers of wrestling magazines than any other female ever has. So the, I mean, yeah. and the cover had to be even even ten times bigger than just being in the magazine, didn't it? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, uh, I, when it was somebody getting on the cover, ninety percent of the time, it was me on the cover. They might have me in the hole, but it was me. And I sat there and said, everybody knew it was me because the cover was right. always in color. The right. inside was black and white, but that that right. cover, they knew my red, white, and blue. Right, Another right. thing I mean, worth uh, worth and, adding uh, about these times, uh, you know, we talk about no internet and and all that. Uh, the the, v- the VHS or the VCR wasn't even really commonplace, yeah. so there weren't even tape traders at this point. Uh, okay. no, 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 no. Those no. pictures that you're talking about, that's all the fans had then, really, to say, yeah. oh, I know, oh, yeah. I know her, I know him, I know yeah. that. Uh, you know, they they come up with a magazine from from the seventies, you know, and, and said, you know, you're on the cover, and it's like, you know. I know. <laughs> I knew I was on the cover when you was down three three people from me because I saw the you know the red, white, and blue, and and right. I started in red, white, and blue, and I've always been in red, white, and blue to this yeah. day. Uh, when I go to wrestling events for Fan Fest, you know I still wear red, white, and blue. You know whether I'm wrestling or just just in the I'm just signing autographs on autograph table. They see the hat and they see my my shirt. You know that I'm in. I'm dressed 
like I did when I was wrestling. Ah, uh, sister's working the gimmicks. What you saying, Seth? Don't let her fool you. Though. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like Crockett. When I see him, he's got his little tiny. He's carrying his tennis racket. Oh yeah, Cornette's got. I mean, where would Cornette be without the tennis racket? He understands me. You know? I mean, and yeah, you got yeah. once again talking the '70s, and because Cornette is my friend, I'm gonna put him over. As controversial mm-hmm. as Cornette is, he was a fan that grew up and became what he became because he was a fan of this era. He grew up in the '70s in yeah. Louisville. Watching yeah. the Nick Goulas and then Jerry Jarrett promotions. This is yeah. what made him. Uh, Paul Moody and, and, and yeah. Michael Hayes, we brought him up. Bobby Eaton, Robert and Ricky mm-hmm. Gibson in the yeah. Gulf Coast. Some of the greatest names that we have in today who became yeah. stars in the 80s and 90s were fans in the 70s of this stuff we're talking mm-hmm. about. And, and uh, I know, to bring up Bruno, because you brought up Bruno earlier. Bruno's openly mm-hmm. stated many times the magazines, were, what we're talking about with the magazines, he goes, I was a regional mm-hmm. star. I was a fan for Vince. But because mm-hmm. I had been on the magazine covers and because I had been in Madison Square Garden, I could get booked in Japan and they knew me. Yeah. You know, right. That's how important. Yeah. This is Bruno. Bruno, who's, who, whether you like Bruno or not, was one of the biggest money draws in the 70s, without question. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not just in wrestling and sports, period. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So take the idea of that. This is a guy who's saying, I couldn't go over to Japan and be a big star unless I had the magazines. That's unheard of yeah. in today's day and age because if you're a star in Atlanta, you're a star in, in Mozambique because all you got to do is hit a keystroke on their computer and 100 pictures yeah. of you pop up. You know? mm-hmm. so, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. And I think another thing that's important people need to realize about the magazines, and I think while they worked and why you guys as the workers in that era – they were very respectful of these regional territorial promoters and they didn't break kayfabe and these stories yeah. and the picks they put in, they were essentially progressing the angles that you were seeing on the television. You know, like yeah. you said, if you're on the cover in a hold, you're a career babyface. Part of the reason yeah. was because Susan was a great seller and a great bumper. They're yeah. going to see her, not that I'm putting her under, but when you see her selling now live, uh, it, it ties into that picture you see of her selling on the cover of, of inside, you know, inside wrestling or whatever, you know? So yeah. those are the things I think help established guys. And I, and I just, I don't think people, a lot of people laugh at the, at the magazine. Oh, they were all kayfabe and they weren't real, but they were so important to the wrestlers. They were so important to the wrestlers. Somebody like you who was in that era tell that, that side. I mean, you told me one time that being on a, re- a magazine literally, and, and picture sales and in memberships to your fan club could oh, yeah. mean between zero to a thousand dollars, literally just one oh, picture. Yeah. yeah. One and we're picture. talking, yeah. Ta- we're talking a thousand dollars in 1975 money, you know? So yeah. extrapolate that out. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was in a discussion, I think it's been over 10 years now, but it was shortly after Samoa Joe got into TNA and right. Joe mm-hmm. made, made the cover of pro wrestling illustrated. And mm-hmm. I was saying like, you know, th- this is like a band getting on the cover of Rolling Stone. You know, it's a sign right. that mm-hmm. you have made it. And I-, yeah. I was still in an argument about this with people, you know, you know, it's just, it's just like, you don't have to read the magazine to understand that being on the cover means you're something. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I have two quick questions for you, Susan. And once again, we want to pre, we want to thank you so much for your time, but yeah, not a problem. If we talk about the seventies, give me, in your opinion, what were what were the the territories, the ones everybody, the girls and the boys wanted to go work? Just just you know two or three that you thought were the premiere of what seventies wrestling could be. What territories were they? If you could think of anybody, uh, 
in Oklahoma, Louisiana. God bless you. I go long miles, but everybody loved working there. Uh, down in Florida, uh, Eddie Graham. Okay. Everybody loved working. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you know, Roy Shires, I loved because of money. He had made me a nervous wreck, mm-hmm. but he made he made, he definitely made me be able to to. Uh, make my wrestling make make the art of wrestling more of, of my business and, and yeah. make make me want to i guess drive it home harder to be that that's why i loved loved wrestling so much because of, of him stressing that you had to be different you right. had to be um willing to go the extra mile yeah right. uh, well that's that, that that's that's funny because i've asked a lot of people that were stars in that era yourself wahoo bill Eady, you know just today mm-hmm. with stan hansen San Francisco and Florida are almost universal. They might have another one other than Oklahoma. Those two are territories I, I hear repeated a lot. So I think that, mm-hmm. you know, as a, if you're a listener and you're wanting to see what was good wrestling from the 70s, coming from the people who worked that era, those are two of the, the, the territories you might want to look into trying to find some video of, is, is San Francisco yeah. and Florida. And then the last question, and this is a tough one, okay? And I'm going to ask you the same question, Seth, as a fan who didn't grow up in the 70s, but it, as, as, as an amateur historian can look back and say things. And, and, and for the record, I started my fandom in wrestling in the 70s as a kid at five years old living in Amarillo, Texas, watching the Funks television. And then from there, I went to Denver and watched Vern's TV. And then here to the 1980 to the Carolinas with the Crockett's. So I got three pretty good territories. We were, were my basis as a fan, I think. Yeah. Talking from 1970 to 1979, the era of the 70s, who was the big star? universally i mean there's a lot of names you can throw out there i think you know uh andre bruno nick bockwinkel harley but to you when you're talking notoriety amongst the fans uh ability to work uh could drew money no matter where they went personal feelings aside who was the big one the big star of the 70s in your opinion susan uh i'll have to say dory funk junior That's a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to argue on that one. What about you, Seth? Uh, I would say Andre because he was in so much demand. But mm-hmm. again, Andre was, a, uh, he was a special attraction. He, uh, he didn't mm-hmm. stay yeah. in the territory very long. Well, and, one, of my, one of my things was drawing money and, and nobody drew money like Andre. So that's, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, Bruno, uh, because of all those sellouts that he did. And if mm-hmm. I had to pick a third, if I had to pick a third one, yeah, pro- probably the Funks because they, they were both they both held the NWA title in the seventies, right? Right, they sure did. Yeah. Uh, me personally, I, I'm going to say, and I'm going to not lie, mine's kind of tinted a little bit by personal feelings. But Harley, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. no no disrespect to Bruno, a new disrespect to Vern and, and Nick Bockwinkel. They had broken away from the NWA, but in the seventies, the NWA was still what. 90% of the world of wrestling fans saw as what wrestling was, no matter what territory you lived in. And Harley defined what the champion was in the 1970s, in my opinion. You know, And he drew yeah. money everywhere he went. He was a top guy everywhere he went. And he was believable. He was a legitimate tough guy. So for me, I, I, say, I say Harley Race. Um, well, but, the other one I was saying, and, and, and it's not being um, i've traveled so much with rick flair would rick would be an, another person that i would say that he always I'll put, yeah i'll put rick more in the 80s i think in the 70s yeah you're yeah. seeing the 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 and that's another thing too we, we we haven't mentioned 
most of our listeners probably started watching wrestling in the 80s or 90s. A lot yeah. of the people that you saw as stars, I mean, mega stars in the 80s and 90s, cut their teeth in the 70s. Whether it's a Ric yeah. Flair, a Hulk Hogan, yeah. uh, a Ricky Steamboat, a Rock and Roll Express, uh, uh, you name it. I mean, all those, uh, Savage, Randy Savage, all these guys, Rick Rude, they all started in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like, I, I guess one of the things that, that, that and Flair started and, and, and whenever I met David and I met Reed Flair, uh-huh. I'd sit there and, and, and uh, I'd have to sit there and look at him because whenever Rick would go to introduce me to his two boys and I'd sit there and say, whoa, 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 y'all got to look at me. I'm the veteran when it comes to me and your dad. <laughs> and, and Reed thought it was, oh, he, you've wrestled longer than my dad. <laughs> and of course, Rick would say, yeah, she has, son. <laughs> well, Susan, yeah. we really appreciate your time. I, I'm sure you and me will talk again sometime next week when it's not recorded. Sure. Uh, but but it was I thought it was just a unique insight when we were going to talk about the 70s and wrestling in that time period. Let's get somebody who, who actually could tell us a firsthand account. It's always yeah. a pleasure. <laughs> and once again, congratulations uh, on your Thank induction you to you at another Hall of Fame. Is there any kind yeah. of social media presence you have you want to plug before we let you go? Uh, anybody interested in, in wanting to wrestle? I got my... Jim, right here in my backyard in Columbia, South Carolina. Okay. Interesting. Jim, a pain and it's Jim, a pain and glory. Or, or uh, Susan Tex Green. They can look that, and then I got it plugged on my Facebook under okay. Susan Tex Green. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I, you know, I I love you to death, and and I and I think the world of you. I love your sister, and, and I will catch you down the road. Thank you so so much okay. for your time. You're very welcome. All right. All right. Thank you. All right. All right. You're welcome. Now available on iTunes and Stitcher. Geekville Radio. Geekville Radio is a show dedicated to news and subjects in the world of geekery. Superheroes, science fiction, comics, gaming, TV. If it qualifies as something for nerds or geeks, you'll find it at Geekville Radio. From one quarter of the creative team that brings you the A1 podcast, Geekville Radio is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at geekvilleradio.com. For a gaming-oriented podcast, then look no further than You Just Got Fragged. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of enthusiasts as they talk the news and video games, achievements, and, of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at YouJustGotFragged.com, part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family. Well, that was some discussion we had with Susan there, Train, and, uh, boy, um, I, I can say I was not disappointed because uh, you, you've <laughs> sang her praises many a time off off air so i do want to thank you for booking her for our show and i do want to <laughs> thank you folks for listening the website is a1-wrestling.com the twitter is a1w podcast and the facebook is a1 wrestling if there's anything you want us to talk about when it comes to classic wrestling memories if there's a specific year or a specific territory or promotion or an angle that you remember that you would like us to talk about, drop us a line at any of those mediums. I can be reached at Seth at a1-wrestling.com. Let, and, you know, we are all ears. No classic wrestling memory not considered. I guess I can put it that way. So, right. Train, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? You can always reach me on Twitter at crazytrain underscore JB. Has, hashtag classic wrestling memories, and I'll know you got got a topic for us to bring up, and I'll dive into my black book, and I hope I can find somebody that might know something about that. But 
Sometimes, you know, it might be, oh, I don't know, God, Hack, Hackenschmidt versus Gotch. I'm not sure if my black book is going to find me a name that could give us firsthand perspective about that, but we will try. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So <laughs> thanks once again for listening, folks. On behalf of Crazy Train and A1-Wrestling.com, thanks you folks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next time. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.